Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Well, we're in the season of Advent leading up to Christmas, and Advent is a time of waiting as Christmas is approaching, and of course the idea is the Messiah is coming, which really is to give us a kind of double perspective, the perspective of the Jews when they were waiting on the Messiah, but of course our own perspective that Christ is coming again. And so it really taps into a theme that I think is a major theme of the Bible, certainly of the Old Testament, of the idea of waiting upon God to act to resolve the problem of evil. Job cries out, Though I cry out violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. Zechariah 1.12 Then the angel of the Lord said, How long, O Lord of hosts, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, with which you have been angry these 70 years? Advent affirms the human perspective. It is a kind of lamentation, waiting for things to be made right, and clearly the idea that they're not right. Psalms 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Waiting in suffering lament is the recurrent theme of the Hebrew Bible. It's in Psalms, it's Isaiah, it's Habakkuk. Here's the passage from Habakkuk 1-2. How long, Lord, shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? This perspective is not one that would just brush aside suffering, violence, evil, but presumes, well, this is the problem creating our lamentable waiting. The theme tells us precisely what to expect with the coming Messiah. We've got a problem, and we're waiting for the Messiah to break into the world and solve the problem of suffering, to solve the problem of evil. Christ will defeat death, the devil, and rescue us from suffering and injustice. The messianic salvation breaks into suffering, real-world human suffering, not to resolve it from above by some divine fiat, but to cure it from within. And this means that we wait, and this waiting is part of faith and hope. It's not resignation, or the unwillingness to engage in suffering, but the recognition of the world's injustices and the acknowledging God needs to do something. And it is in waiting that we take stock of suffering. We don't draw back from that suffering. The waiting is contemplative and quiet. It's waiting in which we allow for the silence of the heavens to infect our soul. Maybe the world grows most silent on that silent night of the birth of Christ. The waiting develops our awareness of the human situation, but also what God is going to do in Christ. P. 
Peter tells us in 2 Peter that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. The problem is not the slowness of God, but the evil of man. The point being that there is a, a clear traceable genealogy to the world's problem. It's traceable to human beings. Evil is not simply some abstract force, but it's what people do. And maybe we could define evil as the refusal to wait upon God and to provide solutions that are human solutions rather than God's solutions. Isn't that the very definition of idolatry? Oh, here is the human solution. But understand that it also presumes to diagnose the problem. Oh, here's the problem and here's the solution. And so the gods of war, the idols that we would manufacture would solve the problem and of course they would inevitably solve the problem by creating more evil. The gods of this world are those which surround us and define us. The big, the loud, the thing that we're all absorbed in. But that's not the way that Christ is acting or God is acting in Christ. As Isaiah says, I'm doing a new thing. He says that about Israel. I think he's saying that about Christ, the new Israel. The ways of God are characterized by something that no one expected. The powers that be were not the ones who recognized the Christ child. It was the shepherds. It was these foreign pagan astronomers, the magi. Be still and know that I am God. I think that's command one. The medieval church in its pursuit of glory now, I think missed God in the suffering of the cross. It overlooked that suffering. And so where wealth and power mark any church, I think it's an indication of the refusal to wait upon God's humble means. It's a refusal of advent. It's a refusal to wait. The theologians of glory, that's what Luther called them, have turned to the noise machines, the machines that we would make of the cathedral, maybe like these mall-like structures, the glittering gold of wealth and the empty promise of power, the health and wealth gospel. Instead of waiting upon the Christ in humble places, there is no more humble place than the manger and the cross. They would seek him out in a palace and would occupy the palace. But a theology of the cross, that's Luther's phrase, it turns from the big, the loud, the noisy, it turns from what people imagine is glorious to the humble and the unnoticed. So Advent is a period of learning to live, I believe, the principle in the manger and the cross. And this addresses the human condition from within. As I quoted Mother Teresa, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. As Brian Zahn has put it, we have been seduced by an idolatry that deceives us into thinking that God is mostly found in the big and the loud, when in fact, God is almost never found in the big and the loud. The ways of God are predominantly small and quiet. The ways of God are about as loud as a seed falling on the ground or bread rising 
in an oven. The ways of God are almost never found in the shouts of the crowd. The ways of God are more often found in trickling tears and whispered prayers. We want God to do a big thing while God is planning to do a small thing. We're impressed by the big and the loud. God is not. We're in a hurry. God is not. We want God to act fast, but God's speed is almost always slow by our measure. So being human, I think, means being consigned to waiting in some way. But don't get me wrong, it's not simply resigned waiting. Waiting may be on the order, I don't know if you know the play, Waiting for Godot. It's a very frustrating play because nothing ever happens in the play. It's a play about waiting. And the whole play, they're waiting for this person. We don't even know who this Godot person is. But it's just two guys waiting for Godot. And when Godot comes, well, then things will be different. And the two characters, it's Vladimir and Estragon. They're both in pain, but they have different sorts of pains. One is suffering physically. His feet are killing him. He's wearing these big boots. Vladimir is suffering mentally. And in both acts of the play, there's only two acts, a large part of the conversation is, well, I guess we should just hang ourselves if Godot doesn't show up. It's not clear, first of all, that he exists. They've never seen him. And if he does exist, he sends a messenger and the boy complains that Godot has mistreated him. And so Godot doesn't seem to be a very nice character at all. They refer to him, and many think this is a biblical reference, oh, he's just a keeper of sheep and goats. But he's left his characters hanging. And I guess that existentially, we're all left hanging. Of course, the hanging here is the two characters are existentially hanging and literally discussing hanging themselves. They need relief, but they have no relief. Waiting is their lot. And so there is, I think, in the waiting of Godot, a kind of infinite resignation. Well, there's nothing to be done. We might as well hang ourselves. I don't know if you remember the comedian George Carlin. He had a wonderful routine about how a dog thinks. My dogs, you know, when I go out, they wagging their tails and they say, oh, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. You know, they're real eager. They're just waiting because they know something's about, and they've been waiting <laughs> Sometimes I take them on a walk, you know, or I'll take them on a ride in the car. But our waiting is not for a ride in the car. The temporal condition is unique. It means that there's only so many acts in the play of life. And we can just spend our life waiting for the play to resolve itself. Surely something will happen. But I believe this sort of waiting, the waiting for Godot kind of waiting, is a fear-driven sort of thing. There's an angst to it. There's ambiguity. You know, even an ambiguity about who this Godot character is. That is perfectly fitting, I think, in describing the absence contained in our own anticipation and angst. So what are you waiting for, I guess, is the question of Advent. Are you waiting, you know, is it death, God, rescue, final destruction? Maybe just a kind of unfillable absence longing for some presence. So Advent is not this sort of waiting for Godot kind of waiting. It is the expectation of the birth of Christ, reimagined and infused 
with the parousia, the second coming. So that God with us, you know, that's Emmanuel. God with us imagines, identifies that God has been absent and now God is present. It identifies the nature of the absence. The waiting is not over at Christmas. It's not over even at Easter. But it certainly is changed up. The ongoing order of expectation. We now have an understanding of suffering, oppression, death. And we're understanding that God has acted to defeat these things. So the angst, the fear, both Paul and the writer of Hebrews identify and says the fear that has had you in its grip, you've been a slave to fear, is undone in Christ. God is present in the worst sort of suffering and Advent is training in a reoriented waiting. God's acted to defeat evil and it's our task to not simply do something or do anything, nor is it that God has acted and so we just sit back and watch what God is doing. And I think there is an understanding of what Christ is going to do, that he, oh, he's not really resolving the problem of evil in the world, but he's going to solve some other problem. Maybe we have a problem with God. But the waiting, the lamentable waiting that we've described in the Old Testament always pertains directly to human suffering. And that's the problem that is the focus of the New Testament. So we don't want to be on the side of the people who put Christ on the cross and rejoice at the death of Christ, right? We don't want to imagine that God himself is at the foot of the cross, putting God on the cross. That would be an odd sort of God. There is a whole picture that has the dying of Christ as a kind of objective legal necessity and the perspective is a divine perspective. I think we lose Advent. We lose the human perspective. The books are now cleared, the blessings can flow, and there is no waiting for justification because, oh, we're theoretically, legally justified. There is no Advent. Psalms 22 speaks directly against this, I believe, and this is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now Jesus doesn't quote the whole psalm, but the Jews who hear him quote that psalm understand the reference. The psalm describes the crucifixion scene. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Oh, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. But in the midst of the suffering, and this seems to be Jesus' point in quoting the psalm, there's hope. That is, it's not simply the futile waiting for Godot, but prayerful complaint brought before God. And it presumes, Psalms 22, you know, verse 24, it presumes he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. He has heard when he cried to him. That's the assurance that we have of the psalm about the cross. And I believe about all of our laments. Now Christ is not departing from the Hebrew concept of waiting or advent. He's completing it. 
Here is the answer to your waiting. His cry from the cross partakes of this biblical theme. Waiting upon God to remedy the world's injustices. His quotation of the psalm, I think, is an enactment. You know, it's like when he goes to the synagogue and he says, this passage is fulfilled today in your hearing. I think the passage, Psalms 22, is fulfilled as Jesus is quoting it. The afflicted, verse 26 of the psalm, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek shall praise the Lord. There is an answer to our lament. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn. He has done it, the psalm says. He has done it. He is doing it right at that moment. He's doing it now and he will do it. But the question is, who can see it? You have to have eyes to see and only those who wait upon the Lord can see. It is a process that requires waiting. That's where we find the shepherds, the outcasts of their society, out waiting in the fields. They probably live in the fields with the sheep. The stargazers, they're not even Jews. They're pagans. How did these guys get in this story? And yet they play a key role. They follow the path of starlight. A few fishermen, they recognize God in this small way, this carpenter, this roving teacher. As Matthew says, and he's quoting Isaiah, describing the Messiah, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. It was not those at the center of power. It's not the important Pharisees. It's not the powerful kings. It's not the ex experts in the law who have the patient perspective to wait and in waiting to recognize the Christ. At the end of the play, Waiting for Godot, there are two visitors that have come, and the two visitors are Lucky, who is a slave, and Pozo. And they've come previously, and then they come again at the end of the play, but now at the end, Pozo is blind, he's the master, and Lucky is dumb. And of course, as the play goes on, we realize, oh, these guys are actually alter egos of the other two characters in the play. They're the alter egos of Latimer and Eskrin, and they're waiting then. First of all, Lucky and Pozo, they don't remember ever having been under the tree where they're waiting before. They don't remember Vladimir and Estragon. They not only are blind and dumb, but they have a memory loss. And of course the point is, oh the waiting, what kind of waiting is this? It's interminable. They're going to be waiting the rest of their lives because they're incapable of knowing Godot. Maybe he's already arrived and left and they would have forgotten. But they keep waiting. And I'm afraid Christians are sometimes blind and dumb concerning what God is doing in Christ. We're all made to wait, but the choice, I think, is an insufferable waiting. Or it's the hopeful waiting of Advent. God has already acted in Christ. Our waiting is not simply waiting for God to do something. He's acted. The wait now is in being able to think, period, right? To be contemplative. To be contemplative enough to discern what God is doing now in Christ. Because the tendency is, like those in his day, 
that we also will mistake the loud and the big and the glorious for what God is doing. I think he's still working in humble places. Luckily, we're in a very humble place here. I think a better place to be able to see God. We can make the mistake of the Pharisees and of Paul before he was a Christian and imagine that we are doing the work of God and in fact we might be found destroying the work of God, right? The signs are obvious. It's easy to tell which side you're on by the methods that you employ. You either put Christ on the cross or you join him there. You either use anger or you use love. You either use violence or you're peaceable. You're either impatient or you're patient. And so the self-aggrandizing importance of the Pharisees doesn't get it. The imagined expertise, you know, of the scribes. They've all figured it out. They know exactly what God is doing, and that's why they can't see what God is doing in Christ. And that's why they are co-participants in putting him on the cross. Instead, it's some pagan astronomers. It's some lowly shepherds. And, you know, you just go through. That's just the characters, all of the characters of the Bible. They're all humble people. He comes to people that are obscure and they pass onto the scene and they pass off the scene and we never hear from them again. They're foreigners. They're poverty stricken. They're distant from the imagined centers of power. Almost by definition, that seems to be the requirement to recognize the Messiah. And so it was not the experts, the powerful, the reactionaries, you know, the zealots of the day, who would have been thought to be, you know, the defining element? Oh, these guys are the movers and the shakers. But it was people who were far from those positions of power. Let me close with a quote from Brian Zahn again. They were not the experts and they were not the reactionaries at the loud center of religious noise. They were quiet people on the silent edges of contemplative thought, gazing at stars and keeping watch by night, are profound metaphors for the contemplative life. To most people it would appear that the Magi and the shepherds were doing nothing of significance in their long nighttime vigils. But they were the ones who were able to discern what God was doing. It was they who were able to find significance in the stars, their contemplative stargazing, the shepherds, They've learned to wait in silence. It's these folks that have found their way to Bethlehem. They were the ones who discerned what God was doing in the ordinary, the most ordinary event of a young woman giving birth in an out-of-way place. And so we want to act in powerful ways, big ways, noisy ways, but God is acting quietly in Christ from the fringes of history. This is Isaiah 43. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God is doing a new thing in Christ. And to perceive it may mean we retreat to the wilderness. We have a vigil in the fields, a period of contemplative stargazing. 
It may be enough to sit for a while at the feet of Jesus, to be quiet and hear the silence of the night. And I think it's only when the din fades, the noise of the world grows silent, that we're enabled to hear the small, still voice of God. And so may this Advent help us prepare to discern the work of God that is all around us. And may we join in what he is doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.